You guys there in John 5? Stories told about a, you know, before I get into that, I want to pray. I want to pray. Let me do that. Father, uh, your word is so precious. It's so powerful. It speaks truth to our hearts. Father, I pray that tonight the truth you speak to us would bring life where the enemy's kind of been pounding away, Father. And, and Lord, sometimes we just feel so weak. I pray tonight, God, make us strong. Speak truth by your spirit, by the power and authority of your word. Speak to our hearts, Lord God. Father, you, Jesus said to Lazarus, come forth. And God, you raised him from the dead. Speak tonight, Lord God, to our hearts and make them alive in Christ. If they're wearied, God, speak life into them and wash away that weariness and be our strength. Give us ears to hear what the spirit would have to say to our church, God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so my story. So a man was parachuting. How many of you have ever been parachuting before, skydiving? Anybody? Yeah, just a few times, right? Uh, Diego actually did it competitively. Didn't you tell me that if you did it just right, you go over 200 miles an hour? Yes. So you got to be careful. You know those guys when they go like this and they point their bodies? They really can dive fast. You just got to make sure you're in synchrony or you hit somebody, game over, right? It can be very dangerous. But here he is and he's skydiving for the first time and an expert, an expert is there with him, making sure his back, his pack, is, his parachute is packed just right. And he says, okay, all you've got to do is you pull this, wait 10 seconds, pull this cord. If it doesn't work, of course it's going to, but then you got your backup cord. Okay, you're all set. I'm going to tell you when to jump. And when I say it, you got to jump. Are you ready? And the guy says, yes, I am. And the expert finally says, okay, jump. And the guy jumps and he counts his hand one, two, all the way. He pulls the cord. Nothing happens. He's frantic. He pulls the other cord. Nothing happens. He's desperate. The expert had said it was all set. Suddenly he's looking down and he sees another man coming directly towards him from the ground. And as he passes by, he says, do you know anything about parachutes? And the man says, no. Do you know anything about gas stoves? Okay, you know what, that's just one. You got to take it. You got to put it in your back pocket for later tonight. When you're trying to go to sleep, you think about it. Oh, you gassed up. Yeah, of course, yes, right. You'll get it. I'll be honest with you. When I first was a Christian, I tried my best to listen to the experts. And there are times, though, in which the experts may not be right. I remember... Actually, at the very year that I was converted at age 14, I got into a lot of end times books. And I was just so interested in end times books. I read the whole book of Revelation. I read chapters, you know, Matthew 24. I I read and read and I I wanted to learn. I wanted to know what was going to happen in my future. And after a couple of years, I began to study the word more and realize, wow, that That guy said he was an expert, but man, I don't see it that way now at all. When I was a young man, I also began to read about evolution. And not just evolution, because that had been taught me in school, but now I was reading about theistic evolution. And I thought, my goodness, this guy's a Christian. He must be right. He's an expert. And I began listening to him and reading, and I began to talk with my dad. And my dad just very graciously pointed me back to the Word. Didn't take too long as I got my feet rooted in the Word. And really what, what, what is available in science, I realized... Scripture certainly and science points towards a sixth literal day creation. What do the experts say? What do you hear them say? In our culture, the experts say a lot of things. Do you listen to them? Why are they experts? They're experts because of their credentials, right? They've studied, at least they say they have, and if they've studied, my goodness, they must be right. Why should we listen to Jesus? when the experts of his day accused him and they wanted to kill him. 
Doesn't sound like a guy that I would want to follow necessarily. If all the experts are speaking against him, so much so they wanted to kill him. Hey, they're the experts, right? What makes Jesus the expert? What makes him the one that I should listen to? What are his credentials, right? Last week, we looked at the very beginning of John 5. And in John 5, Jesus walks up to a man at the pool of Bethesda who is lame. And he says, what do you want? And the man says, "My I need someone to help me to the pool because whenever it's stirred up, someone gets there ahead of me. Apparently, there was a tradition that when the water was disturbed and some suggest it was an angel, that was the very early church um, tradition, but what made the water stir? We're not exactly sure. But when it was, apparently there was enough uh, evidence that when people stepped into it, they would actually be healed. So this man wanted that, but he could never do it. So Jesus healed the man. But it was on the Sabbath. You remember the story. They approached him and said, hey, why are you carrying your mat on the Sabbath? Then they find out the man had been healed on the Sabbath. They're not sure by who, but that man, he was the one who told the, the lame man to walk with his, with his mat, apparently breaking the Sabbath because it was a load. You're not supposed to carry a load on the Sabbath. Well, when Jesus found him in the temple courts, he told the man, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. We discovered that something worse at least was hell. So stop sinning. How is that going to happen? Jesus perceived that though he had, out of his compassion, healed the man, the man's heart remained unchanged. I'm going to just tell you tonight, guys, before we move into this, that Jesus does things in our lives. He does miracles in our lives. Whether you see it or not, he does miracles in your life. Out of his heart of compassion, don't miss them. Respond to them. Follow Jesus. He allows these things to win our hearts, to open our eyes, give us deeper understanding and appreciation for him and all of his gifts. But this man's heart, it, they, it remained unchanged. Unchanged, being a blame shifter as he was, he just continued to do that. And he was caught in this vice, this stranglehold of his sin. And Jesus told him, look, you got to lay that down. You have to stop sinning. We all know that the only way to stop sinning, the only way to obey what Jesus actually said here is to have the Spirit of God and the power of God in you to be able to do that. Obviously, that was missing. Well, our story moves on. I read these first few verses to you last week. I'm going to read them again, but I'm going to read to the very end of the chapter, chapter 5, but starting with verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things, healed on the Sabbath and told the man to carry his mat, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews, remember the Jews, when John mentions them, it generally almost always means those who are opposed to Jesus, religious leaders opposed to Jesus. The Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now understand, for some reason in the NIV, they dropped this word, but it's very clearly there in the Greek, therefore, in response to what the Jews were accusing them. Therefore, verse 19, therefore, Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by him. He calls himself the son. Who's his daddy? The heavenly father. My father, he says. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. 
because whatever the father, excuse me, whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Church, underline that all. Shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as, here's an example, for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son, keeps referring to himself as the son, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Whoever the father judges, excuse me, moreover, the father judges no one but is entrusted all judgment, underline that word, all, all judgment. How much judgment, church? All judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and he will not be condemned he has crossed over from death to life i tell you the truth now some of your versions say truly truly or verily verily i tell you the truth a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the son of god now he calls himself the son of god not just the son and those who hear will what church live for as the father has given, excuse me, as, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man. Hmm, what does that mean? Verse 28. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. Those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. You have, you have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth, not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it so that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the very work that the Father has given me to finish, and which I am doing, that they were saying, by the way, was breaking the Sabbath, testifies that the Father has sent me. Remember, the Jews thought and accused of the exact opposite. He must not be from God. They wanted to kill him. Verse 37, and the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently study the word because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. Exclamation mark, by the way. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? But do not think I accuse you before the Father, your accuser, is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Jesus has a lot to say here. 
The first thing they accuse him of is breaking the Sabbath. Now, let's be clear. Jesus broke the Sabbath. He desecrated the Sabbath, but he was innocent. We learned that last week because the moral law trumps the ceremonial law, Sabbath being ceremonial law. It was a shadow of things to come. The body the, that casts the shadow is found in Christ. The Sabbath simply looked ahead to Christ and our rest in Christ and what he accomplished for us by the cross and resurrection. We don't have to work and do so many good works and, wow, man, I hope I get to heaven. Christ's finished work was all that we needed. As a matter of fact, I don't care how many good works you do, you can never make it to heaven based on your good works. By the way, it does say here that we'll be judged according to our good works. We're going to have to look at that. But the Sabbath pointed to the cross and the resurrection, and everything I needed for life is found there by faith in Jesus Christ, so I can rest. Those in the Old Testament rested in that, though they did not understand the cross. They looked ahead for what God would do, because God promised that he would forgive them of their sins. So they accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath and desecrating it, which was true, but Jesus was innocent. Even as David ate the showbread, you're not supposed to do that, David. But because of the need that he had running for his life from Saul with his men, that need trumped the ceremonial law. They're also accusing him of calling God his very own father, thereby making himself equal with God. And guess what? They were right. But just so you know, Jesus is equal to God except in authority. As the father, he is the head of the Godhead. He tells the son what to do. The son tells the spirit what to do. Salvation is accomplished. God is greater than the son with regard to authority. In my home, I'm the head of my home with respect to authority. But my wife and I are equal. We're equally human. We're equally valuable in the eyes of God. There is no male or female in Christ. There's no special treatment, no special value placed upon husbands or wives. We are of equal significance before God. But he has asked me as the male, as the husband, to lead my family. My wife leads with me, but he calls me the head. Even so, the father is the head of Christ. So Jesus is of equal value, equal essence. Jesus indeed is God, but he's not equal in authority. So these accusations had their truthful side, but they didn't quite grasp the whole measure of the issue. And so Jesus, he addresses it. We know that he addresses it because in verse 19, he begins, therefore, Jesus answered them. So Jesus is now speaking to them, and this is how he defends himself. He gets into two things. He gets into this issue of life, and now life resides in him, and that he is the judge, that the Father has actually given all judgment to the Son. The Father does not judge at all. I guess at the great white throne judgment, that would make Christ the judge. My personal understanding of Scripture is that the great white throne judgment is also the judgment seat of Christ. The great white throne judgment has to do with whether your name is in the book of life, the judgment seat of Christ, and as soon as your name is found to be in the book of life, where our works are weighed, and we receive rewards accordingly, the judgment seat of Christ. So here is Jesus, and he's declaring that life is in him, and his very first response is, hey guys, just so you know, 
the father breaks the Sabbath like all the time because he's working. God the Father took six days to create, took one day, more than a vacation, but he took one day as a break from, from, as a break from creation and he made it holy. And so consequently, you and I live in the Sabbath, that is the day of rest, continuously, but the Father, I could say physically, but he works every day. And so Jesus is saying that he works too. Now, that doesn't mean that he's going to carry some heavy load on the Sabbath. The Pharisees can split hairs all they want as far as what's work and what's not, but the truth is loving your neighbor, helping a man who is lame be healed will always trump this rule of the Sabbath. Always. God's love, God's mercy triumphs. It says here that Jesus does only what he sees the Father doing. And because the Father loves him, the Father's going to show him everything that he does. Not just some things, everything. This relationship between the Son and the Father is so intimate, the Father shows him everything. Now, I'm going to suggest that the Father does lead us by his Spirit, but he does not lead us as intimately as he does with his Son, Jesus. But Jesus is saying, even as the Father works, so I work. And I am simply doing, that is, working and loving people and ministering to needs. I'm going to do that every day. Every single day. And he, in, in other passages, declares himself thereby innocent. Jesus, it's, it says, in Jesus, there is all life. He is the expert when it comes to life. Remember, he was the one who created us way back in Genesis. Um, Genesis 2.7. It says, the Lord God, that is Yahweh, his covenantal name God, breathed or formed man out of the dust of the earth and breathed life into him. That was Jesus there at creation, breathing life into Adam. That was Jesus, Yahweh God. The Father created all things through his Son. It was through Jesus' breath into Adam that Adam was made a living soul. John 1.4 John tells us that in him was life, and that life was the light of men. In Jesus was life. I'm going to read a few passages to you here. In Job 33, verse 4, it says, The Spirit of God has made me the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Psalm 36, verse 9. It says, For with you is the fountain of life. With you, God, is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. God has placed all life into his son. From the son exudes this life. Not only does he have life, but he is also called to be the judge. Isaiah 2.4, it says this. It says, he will, this is referring to Yahweh. He will judge, Yahweh will judge between the nations and he will settle disputes for many peoples. That's the one where it says they'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. He will be the judge. This is Jesus. He will be the judge. In Isaiah 33, verse 2, excuse me, 22, it says this, For Yahweh is our judge, Yahweh is our lawgiver, Yahweh is our king, it is he who will save us. 
See, the king was the one who knew the law. The king was the one who was supposed to now exercise the law from his throne amongst his people. Cases would be brought to him and he would weigh them. He was the judge. The king is the judge. God Almighty, Yahweh is the king of the universe. And this is saying that Jesus then is Yahweh because all judgment, all of it has been given to the son. I want us to understand then this intimacy between the father and the son. But here's my question. Why is Jesus pursuing this line of reasoning, life and him being the judge and bringing judgment? Life and judgment. What's Jesus's point? Life and judgment. Verse 24 says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. Who gives that eternal life? See, the son does, God does, through Jesus Christ. He is the one who brings life. But what does the next verse say? It says, and will not be condemned. That literally is saying, and will not come into judgment. Jesus is the judge, will not judge. Why is that? Why is it that Jesus connects life and judgment here? What's the significance of this? Colossians 2.13 says, God made you alive, forgiving us all our sins. When the spirit of life came into you to take that which was dead and make you alive, it says that he had to get rid of what killed you. Remember this? I mentioned several months ago. For you to come alive, that thing, that very thing that killed you, which is your sin, something has to happen to it. When a guy gets mugged and a, and a, a, a knife gets thrust into his belly, in order to save that man's life, the very first thing that the paramedic or the doctor or the surgeon that's going to save his life is going to have to do is pull the knife out. You got to get rid of what's good, what has killed him. Then you can bring him to life. And that's exactly what the scripture is saying. For those of us who have been made alive, for, for us to be made alive, we had to first be forgiven. Before we're born again, before we're regenerated, we have to have our sins forgiven. Before we are born of the Spirit, another phrase that John uses, or born of God, or another one that he uses in chapter 1, verse 12, become children of God, we must first have our sins washed away, the very thing that killed us. And now the Spirit of life comes into us. He's like a river of rushing water within us, living water that wells up in us. It's like a fountain that never runs dry. That spirit of life comes in us and we are now alive in Christ. Life. Can I just ask you, what, do you, what was your life like before Christ and what is your life like now? So many of us, we would have to confess, well, there's very little difference. And I would suggest, according to God's word, if we let the Spirit of God work in us, we're talking, church, we're talking about the difference in your life between death and life, between light and darkness. There should be a vast difference. I'm not saying that you're going to be perfect, but I will tell you this, you should see a difference in your life. And can I suggest, in the early days of when I was a boy, I, you know, I was eight years old. I, I asked Jesus to come into my heart because that's what the pastor said. How many of you want to go to heaven? Of course, eight years old, I shot my hand. I want to go to heaven. My goodness, who wouldn't? I'm looking around and seeing only a few hands raised. I'm thinking, what, what are you kids thinking? Don't you want to go to heaven? Here's a free ticket. I'm raising my hand. Well, my life didn't change at all because I really did not understand the gospel. This happened again when I was 10 and when I was 12. When I was 14, it's like something just clicked. I am surrendering now to Jesus Christ. You have everything, you, everything God. 
I am yours. And God's spirit of life came into me and I was awakened. I was, I came alive. I was born of the spirit, born of God. My sins were washed away. I was a different person. The one who did this is Jesus because now he is the one who gives life. So if that which killed me, which is sin, is now gone, church, there is no judgment. For God's life to come into you means that your sins are washed away. There is no judgment. There's no condemnation for us. And Jesus is wanting them to see, hey, if there is someone who can bring life, who, is, who can speak with you, answer your questions, and that person can say, you are innocent, you are no longer guilty, your sins are washed away, don't you think you would want to listen to him? And Jesus is saying, hey guys, it's me, the son. Remember in the very beginning in John chapter 1, we were talking about the son, the Son of God. John the Baptist had an epiphany that Jesus was the Lamb of God and the Son of God. Do you remember that? See, the Son of God throughout the, the Gospel of John is always connected with life. You see that everywhere in this chapter. Life, life. Jesus is the one who brings life. Only the Lord God Almighty is the one who brings life. And guess what? Jesus is there to bring life. So much so that he says this. He says, hey, when I am, there's going to, a time is coming, and guess right, guess what? It's already here in which the Son of God is going to speak and people will come alive. Now, let me just say this, that when he's talking about the voice, excuse me, when he's talking about the time has come and has now come when the dead will hear his voice, he's not talking about necessarily the physically dead, though that happened on three occasions in the Gospels that Jesus actually raised someone from the dead, at least three. But he is talking more specifically about those who are spiritually dead, that they're going to now come to life. And Wow, this thing's really losing power. I can still see, though. And so he is the one who will bring life, speak the word. In other words, we're spiritually dead. We hear, what, we hear the gospel. We receive it, and we are, we are translated. We are moved. We, are, we cross over from death to life. And why is this so amazing? He says, because he is the son of man. Do you see that in verse 27? Jesus is the son of man. Now, if you would, keep your fingers here. I want you to, to turn over to, to Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. Now, we've read this passage before. I want you to see it again, maybe in a new context or new light. But Jesus is this one who looks or appears as a son of man. It says, one like a son of man was ushered into the very presence of the ancient of days. That is God the Father. He's on his throne. He, is, he has rivers of fire, which represent judgment, flowing from his throne, it says a few verses earlier. And the son of man is ushered before the judge. That's the picture here. If there's any picture given, it is that God... The ancient of days is the judge. And this is what the judge does. Verse 14. He approached the ancient of days, led into his presence. Verse 14, he referring to, now this is Jesus. He is the one like a son of man. He was given authority. This word authority, understand this section of Daniel is written in Aramaic, not Hebrew. So there's only a few Chapters in the Old Testament written in Aramaic. <coughs> Aramaic is what they spoke when they were in exile in Babylon, and they learned it, and that's why when they came back from exile, they continued to speak Aramaic. Jesus spoke Aramaic. Though the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, this section is written in Aramaic. This Aramaic word is translated, let me just get this right, it's translated dominion, it's translated authority, but it's also translated rulership. 
just like a king. He was given a kingship, a rulership. He was given glory and sovereign power. It says all peoples, nations, and men of every language did what, church? What did they do? They worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. He is now receiving as a king this kingdom. Remember Jesus in his parable said there was a, there was a, a nobleman's son who went away to become king, and when he came back, I'm cutting the story short here, he had to destroy those subjects that, want, that rejected him as king. See, this is Jesus. This is a picture of Jesus. Now he has ascended to the Father. After his resurrection, ascended to the Father. He is ready to sit down at the right hand of the judge of all the earth. And that judgment has now been given to the Son. He, as the Son of Man, will render all judgment and all life will flow from him. I want us to look at this. It says right there in verse 28, Don't be amazed, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. One of the things that I listen to as listening to what I thought were the experts when I was a young man in Christ, was books like Late Great Planet Earth, There's a New World Coming, um, had a particular millennial view, focus on the end times and how everything will come down, what it was, what it, what's all going to happen. And of course, all of this was going to happen before 1988. That is 40 years after Israel became a nation. And he, he went to chapter and verse, and he proved this, and well, I just, my goodness, here I am, it's 1976, 1975, 1976, and I just thought, wow, that's like 12 years from now, and I, I wanted to know what's going to happen within 12 years. Well, one thing I learned apparently was that Jesus was supposed to rapture all the believers in a very silent, quiet rapture, bringing them up to heaven seven years before he actually came back. And as I read through that, and I wow, okay, um, I, I don't want to be left behind. And so I tried to prepare myself. And I began to realize as I was reading through this that I, I didn't believe that the scriptures taught that. When Jesus says that he is going to bring, that he is going to uh, speak, his voice will be heard by everyone in the grave, I, I, at that point, I began to realize, well, you know what? The view that I was holding at that time, and some of you may hold this view, but it, at that time, as I was looking at this, and I began to realize, well, you, apparently there is a resurrection of the righteous, then there is a thousand-year reign of Christ, and then the resurrection of the wicked. That was the view that I was being taught. And as I began to search the scriptures, I began to wonder, how can this be? Jesus voice will be heard from all those in the grave and the righteous will be raised and the wicked will be raised. Let me just, I don't want to spend much time in this, okay? It's not my purpose. I want to just, I want you to see that there is one judgment. There is one resurrection of the righteous and the wicked, some to eternal life, some to eternal death, all at once, not separated by a thousand years. It says in Jude 14 and 15, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. These men were the wicked in their day. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way. And all of the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. 
Jesus' very purpose for coming to the earth wasn't simply to raise the righteous and then a thousand years later raise the wicked, but his purpose was to come to the earth with judgment upon the wicked, yes, to raise us up who believe in Jesus, but to bring judgment upon the wicked. And according to 2 Thessalonians 1, he's going to come and bring everlasting destruction to them at his second coming. When Jesus comes, he raises both the righteous and the wicked. He judges both the righteous and the wicked. There is no thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. In Matthew 25, verse 31, this is a teaching with regard to, he uses a simple para, a simple simile of sheep and goats, but it's not a parable, it is a teaching, and this is what it says in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes, so that's at the end of the age, I just want you to picture this in your mind, at the end of the age, when the Son of Man comes, remember, he's the Son of Man received all rulership, glory, and power. When the Son of Man comes in all his glory and all the angels with him, he will, it says, then, at that time, this is the Greek word tate, it means then, at that time. When the Son of Man comes, then at that time, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered to him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. What happens next? What unfolds is that the king will say to those on his right, enter into my joy, but then later the king will... Re the king will say to those on his left, be part from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire. He does not wait a thousand years between those two judgments at one time. When the Son of Man comes, then at that time he'll sit on his glorious throne and he will judge the righteous and the wicked. There's no second chance. When that day comes, our future is decided forever. Forever. Actually, it is in this life that our future is decided because Jesus said, if you hear my words and believe in the one that sent me, you will have eternal life. When I was 14, it's like it just clicked. And I began, I, I, at that moment, I believed in Jesus. And Jesus, the author of life, the one who, who breathed into Adam new life and he became a living soul, breathed his spirit into me. My sins were forgiven. I received new life. I was dead in my transgressions and sins. And now I came to life in Christ. And he set me on a new trajectory in following after him. And it has been hard at many points. But church, I am alive in Christ, and I know that I am alive. God rescued me. He is the one who brings life, and because I have that life, no condemnation will ever come to me. No condemnation will come to you because you have life, and thereby your sins are forgiven. But you see, the Jews, they still didn't get it. And we know this as we continue to follow this passage because Jesus says that there are three witnesses about what I have done. I'm not testifying of myself. If Jesus' testimony would be considered valid, and of course it would be, but you just can't testify for yourself in court. So it would be, there were three testimonies apart from him. The first one was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a human, yes, he... What he spoke was valid, it was true, but it's, Jesus says that I don't accept human testimony. But what he said was true. He pointed to me. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Son of God. He's the one who brings life. They didn't get it. The second testimony that affirms Jesus testimony is being valid and what he, Jesus was saying and doing is valid was the very works that he did. No other person has done the miracles that Jesus has done. They were called signs and wonders. Signs point to something, okay? 
you're in real trouble when you have a sign, like a street sign, and you ever seen them and they're turned around and you think you're turning down the right road? No, you're not. You're now headed in the opposite direction. Signs are supposed to point us in the right direction. Jesus' works, that would not only include his miracles, but all of the things that he did out of compassion, all of the words of truth that he spoke, all of these things, they point to him. No one has ever done the things that Jesus did. And these Jews just saw a man who was lame but now he can walk. How do you get around that? How do you look at a man, John 9, who was born blind, his parents testify to it, but they say, hey, listen to him. He's got it because anyone who believed in Jesus would be kicked out of the synagogue. So the parents tried not to, they, they wanted to put it off on the, well, he's old enough, ask him. But here is a person who was born blind. He's healed. How did that happen? You know, it's interesting that the Jews never, ever refuted Jesus' miracles. When Justin Martyr is debating with Trypho, a Jew, concerning Jesus, Justin Martyr says, look at all the miracles that are taking place in the church, the spirit of, and there's no miracles happening in your community. And he says this, the spirit of God has moved from the Jewish community to those who believe and follow Jesus. If you were to fast forward now a few years, 200 AD, the Babylonian Talmud, which was originally just the traditions of the elders, but now they're written down in 200 AD, they talk about Jesus in that Talmud. They even talk about Jesus' miracles. Can you believe that? But you know what they say in response? There's not one word. Trypho doesn't do this. The Talmud doesn't do this. They don't say, they just thought that Jesus did miracles, but he really didn't. They don't deny the miracles at all. They accept them, but they say he did it by the power of Satan. That was their way around it. They couldn't deny this testimony of Jesus' works. The third testimony was the testimony of the Father. That is the Old Testament words. And Jesus says, in that Old Testament, that's where you will read about me. I'm the one, he says, that was, I'm the one who it refers to. I'm the one who would bring life. He says, but here's why you don't receive it. You are too interested in backpatting. You're too interested in other men praising you. You're too interested in fitting in. You're too interested in having other rabbis praise you for what you teach. And what would it look like, like what happened with Nicodemus, should you stand up and say, I am following Jesus as the Son of Man. He has all authority now. He's the one who brings life. He is the judge. You'd be kicked out of the synagogue. And Jesus says, here's why you don't receive me. Because you consider men's praise as more valuable than God's praise. Church, we live in a day in which we are caught between a rock and a hard place. So many in our day, they want to follow Jesus. They think it's a good idea, but the cost is too high. The cost means that they'll have to be rejected by their peers because it's fashionable to believe certain things in our day. And if you don't believe those things, people look down upon you. See, church, it is fashionable to believe that if you do any good, my goodness, of course you should go to heaven. It's fashionable to believe that all religions worship the same God. It's fashionable that Jesus is just not the only way. That's so narrow-minded, we are told. It's fashionable to believe that the Bible is simply only one way among many or one book among many that is good. That there's no hell. If there is one, it is only for the worst of the worst. Certainly not for me and you. We're above that, right? 
It's fashionable to believe that there are many paths to God. It's fashionable to believe in our day, in our culture, in America, that socialism is a valid means of governance, even though it completely contradicts the Bible in many levels. It's fashionable to believe that we should never tell people their beliefs are wrong. See, that's arrogant. Who are you? Who are you, Jesus? It's fashionable to believe that everyone has their own set of morals and therefore we should never judge them. That is, we should never tell them that their standards are just plain wrong. See, morality is an opinion. If you like vanilla ice cream and another person likes chocolate ice cream, who's right and who's wrong? See, that's the way they view truth in our day. It's fallen in the streets. It's fashionable to believe these things. It is not fashionable to believe that Jesus is the only way, only truth, and only life. It is fashionable to believe. It is not fashionable to believe that if I trust in him and only in him, will I have everlasting life. It's not fashionable to believe that Jesus will condemn everyone who does not believe in him. Whoever believes in the Son has life. Whoever does not believe in the Son of God does not have life. When it says that we will be judged according to our works, Jesus, John, in his gospel, made it very clear that the wrath of the Father remains on everyone who has not believed in Jesus. Jesus said, here's the work the Father would have you do to believe in the one he sent. Do you want to do good works? The very first thing is to believe in Jesus. Everything starts with that. If you don't believe in Jesus, you're still lost and dead in your transgressions and sins. You cannot do what is truly pleasing and honorable to God. There are no good works whereby you would be judged and said, sure, you can go to heaven. You must believe in Jesus. That's when the good works follow. You must plant the orange seed to become an orange tree to have oranges. Forget about it if you plant an apple tree and expect oranges. So Jesus is very is challenging us. He everything all of life flows through him and he is the one who gives it to anyone who would desire it. But I'm telling you this right now that if in our day We continue to desire the praise of men, the praise of politicians, the praise of those that we look up to more than the praise of God. And I include myself in that, by the way. Please don't ever lift me up above the word of God. Listen to the voice of the Spirit. Read and study the word of God for yourself. This is the authority that we will be judged by. But that's not fashionable, is it? So Jesus says, you make a choice. And his choice was to listen to the Father and only do what the Father said and only do what the Father did. Let me close in prayer. Father, your word is truth. I pray, Father, in this day, as we are challenged to listen to all the stuff, the gobbledygook, the half-truths that the world offers, God, may we be bold not to look to the praise of men and to believe what's fashionable, but to only look to you, the author of life, the only judge. And I just ask you, Lord, give us hearts that are tender to you, that want you more than anything in this world. And Father, I thank you that by your grace, you've transformed us and you've taken us from life to death. In Jesus' name I pray.